All right, so tonight we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 in the study that we're calling Jesus is Greater Than Moses because Jesus, as we'll see, is greater than Moses. That's the focus of the writer in this passage. So, so Hebrews 3, let's pray and uh, let's go, go through it and see what the Lord has for us. Father, thanks so much for your word. Lord, we're reminded in the scriptures often that you are our shepherd, Lord, and that you will feed us. I was just thinking about that scripture in Isaiah 40, um, Lord, where it says that you will come as a shepherd, Lord, and feed us and carry the lambs in your arms, Lord, and and bear up those with young. And, And Lord, we know that you're here with us tonight to teach us, Lord, and I pray that as we get into your word, the bread of life, Lord, and we break it apart, that you would multiply it, Lord, to each one of us, and that you would cause growth, Lord, that, Lord, you know each one of our hearts, you, as our shepherd, Lord, know each state of us, Lord, and where we are and, and what we need the most, and so, Lord, we pray, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish that perfect work tonight through the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't think the writer ever had the song Anything you can do, I can do better. But he could have used it of Jesus as he contrasts Jesus with the various individuals or practices of Judaism. Because as we have seen so far in the book of Hebrews, anything that they bring up against Jesus, Jesus is better. He's greater. The word better is used some 11 times in this book. Over and over and over, showing that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. So far, we have seen that Jesus is greater than the prophets. God brought his revelation to man through the prophets, but Jesus is greater because he is God. He didn't just reveal God through his words, but he revealed God through his nature. He himself is God. We looked at how Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels were important in Judaism. As we saw, angels were used by God to mediate the law. Moses received the law through the mediation of angels, Paul says in the book of Galatians. And angels were held in a high place in Judaism. And the writer says, okay, well, let's talk about Jesus and the angels. And he shows how Jesus is greater because he's God, the son of God. And then he showed how Jesus is even greater in his humanity and that he was given the promise to rule. And that through Christ, mankind will rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. Now he's gonna take it a step further. Now he's gonna talk about Moses, whom God gave the law to and through whom God established Judaism. And so, as we'll see, he, he's getting more into this as he contrasts. Now, the focus of the writer here is on the readers. How would they respond? You know that song, right? They say, no, you can't. You know, you know, anything you can do, I can do better. Well, no, you can't. Well, what is our response to that? What would be the Hebrews' response to that? Would they agree with the writer? Yeah, Jesus is better. Or would they reject what the writer was saying? and say, no, Jesus isn't better. It's an important thing. It's it's an important decision because as we're gonna see, it shows us where our heart is. As we're gonna see our confession, how we abide in Christ and our response to who Jesus is speaks to us a lot about our heart. So the Lord wants to do some heart surgery tonight with us as we sit and allow him to minister to us. As we look at this passage tonight, we're gonna see that Jesus is greater than Moses because of his person and his work. So look at verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, 
Christ Jesus. So once again, we see that word therefore because the writer, he's building on everything that he's been saying. Now this, as most of you know, these books are written as letters. And so we break them up to study them. But in reality, as they received this letter, the pastor would get up and he would just read this whole thing. They had a really good intention span in those days, right? I mean, they were able to read and hear this and, and, and have the Holy Spirit apply it to them. So he's building on what he just said. He's applying what he just said. He's looking back, but then he's now moving forward in application. He said, based upon what he said, these believers were to understand their position in Christ. They were to look at themselves in light of what he said. In uh, Hebrews chapter two, verses 10 through 18, we saw the work that Jesus has done for mankind through the cross. We saw that through faith in Jesus, we're now made brothers of Christ, joint heirs with him. And that's what he says here, we're called holy brethren. The believer in Christ is holy. It's pretty amazing to think about that. The Bible says you are holy. Well, this is true positionally as we believe in Jesus. The Bible says that God sets us apart from the world. We were once enemies of God, alienated from him by our own wicked works. But yet God, through our faith in Jesus Christ, has placed us in his son. And now when he looks at us, he doesn't see us as an enemy. He sees us as his own son. He sees us holy. He sees us set apart. In the future, one day we'll be set apart from the sin of our, our, ourself and the world and our flesh. We'll be perfectly holy in heaven. That's total perfection. But that won't happen until we get to heaven. Presently, right now, the Lord is sanctifying us. That's what he said in chapter 2, verse 11. He is sanctifying. He's setting us apart. He is making us holy. It's a present work that the Lord is working in our lives through his word and through the spirit. And so these believers were to recognize that. They were holy brethren, and as a result of that, they were to respond to it. You know, so God said, hey, here's you are. You're in the family of God. God's working in your life. Well, then you need to cooperate with the work of the Spirit. You know, and, and so, and we have that responsibility as believers. Yes, God is working in your life, but we also need to cooperate with him and put ourselves in places where uh, he can do a, a great work in our hearts. These believers are called partakers of the heavenly calling, the word partaker means to share. And this word is used in Luke 5, 7 to describe four men who shared a, fish, a fishing business. And so the fact that these readers were partakers um, shows us, once again, that they were believers. And so they were partakers of this heavenly calling. They were sharing in the good things of the gospel. Later in the epistle, we're gonna see that they're partakers in other things. They're partakers in Christ, Hebrews three fourteen. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 6, 4, they're partakers of the Father's discipline. You say, what? Well, yeah, they're children of God. And just as a father loves his child and trains them and disciplines them, even though the Lord was disciplining them, indicating that they were children of God. Also, they are a partaker of God's holiness in Hebrews 12.10. So all of these blessings that they had of being partakers in God and in his work all stemmed from the fact that they were called by this heavenly calling. It all began there. In the same way with your walk with the Lord, we earn nothing in our salvation, but it's all a result of our faith with Christ. People say, oh, Christianity is such a narrow way. Well, yeah, it is a narrow way. The Lord said that. But as all of us know, as we come to Christ, man, it just opens up, right? It's like a funnel. 
You know, it, it's narrow as we come across, but as we open up, we realize just how much the Lord wants to do in our life. Now, what is this heavenly calling? Well, notice he says the heavenly calling. So this is a reference to a specific call, and it's a call to when a person comes to salvation. The call of God has been defined as that act of God by which God invites men to accept by faith the salvation provided by Christ. And that's God's desire for all men. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is calling to all men through the cross. Now, the means of God's call and the way that God works is described in a number of ways in the Bible. Here's some of them. It's not limited to this. God is a big God. He can use many things, but we're told that it's through the grace of God that God calls us. It's through the work of the Spirit on the sinner's heart to, to woo man. It's through the gospel, right? But as Paul said in Romans 10, how can you believe unless someone preaches the gospel and you hear it and you believe the message? Also, we're told that um, it's, it's through the word, through the gospel, and then also it's through the, the power of God as he ministers to you. It's the grace of God. It's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. And so God is continually working. So in order for a person to become a child of God, they must have the call of God in their life, but then they also must respond to it, right? I mean, I can call to my kids and them not respond to me, and that, that does nothing. And so they were, they were to recognize who they were because they were called by God and they responded to it. They were walking with the Lord. And so if they were children of God and they were walking with the Lord, why did they want to now turn back to Judaism? And that's really the point of the writer here. He said, hey, listen, guys, think about this for a second. You're called by God, you're partakers, you're, you're holy brethren, and now you want to turn away from those things and go back to Judaism? They were, rather than look back, they were to look forward. And he encourages them how to do that. He says here, consider Christ Jesus. Consider Christ Jesus. The word consider means to make a careful study or an investigation. It's an amazing thing to think about. Make a careful study and investigation and how many people's lives have been changed by just doing that? I mean, think about the millions of lives who have been changed by just saying, hey, make an investigation of Jesus. Make a careful consideration of who he is. Often people criticize Christianity. Oh, Christians are all hypocrites. You know, oh, well, what about this? What about that? And then you ask them, well, have you considered Jesus? Well, no. People often will criticize the Bible, and they, but they know nothing about it. <laughs> Because they only read the stuff that's on the internet. They never actually read the Bible itself and consider Jesus. Men like C.S. Lewis and Simon Greenleaf and Lee Strobel, they were all challenged to study Christ. And what happened? They came to know Jesus. It's a powerful thing. So if you're not a Christian here tonight, I would challenge you, consider Jesus. The Lord has demonstrated through his life that he is God. The Lord has demonstrated through the cross that he is sufficient for your sins. And the Lord has demonstrated through the resurrection that he's the only way. And as we realize that, it will encourage us to not look back to our old life, but to look forward to the Lord. Not only are we to just, you know, do that in salvation, but we're to do that in our whole life. We're never to take our eyes off Jesus. We're to consider, we're, we're continually to consider him over and over and over and over. These folks got distracted from doing that. They started putting their eyes on other things, non-essentials, and, and they took their eyes off Jesus, and really the way to center them was to say, hey, put your eyes back on Jesus. Keep the main things the main things. 
Now, how are they to consider Jesus? Well, they were to consider him and his person and work, as we saw in Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. Jesus is the apostle of their confession. The word apostle means one who is sent. That's really what the word means. It's one who is sent. And as we all know, Jesus was sent by God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Lord was sent to this earth from the God. He was sent with a commission. He didn't just come here just to hang out and say, oh, let me see what's gonna happen today. No, he came with a mission. He had the Father's plan. He always talked about the Father's hour and the Father's will and the Lord had mission. But he also had authority, divine authority entrusted to him as a son of God. Jesus came to this earth and revealed the Father to mankind. But also he went to the cross and he was the captain of our salvation. And as we saw last week, that word captain means um, trailblazer the one who cuts a path, just like a person in the jungle, maybe Columbia, as you're getting chased by jaguars, cutting a path through the jungle. I'm just saying that for now over there. You know, maybe the Lord, you know, cut, cutting a path through the jungle, you know, and um, making a path for, for, for people to fall, and that's what Jesus did for us as we, as we um, believe in him. He's made a way to God. As we follow Jesus, he will give us eternal life. He's our high priest of our confession, now, we're gonna talk about this high priesthood of Jesus a lot as we finish chapter four, eventually, one day, and, and as we get into like chapters five and six and seven, um, we're gonna learn a lot about Jesus' priesthood. But for now, we can see Jesus as the one who represents us to God. And so you see this twofold ministry here of Jesus. He's the apostle, he was sent by God to reveal God to man, but as high priest, he represents us to God. So he gives God the man, but then high priest, he represents us to God. And he did that. He made a way to God through his sacrifice. The writer called it a propitiation, which is a big word. It just means one who satisfies God's wrath. You see, each one of us had broken God's law by our sin, right? We're all sinners. And that law, the penalty of that law is death and wrath. Well, Christ took our place on the cross and took his wrath took our death. And as a result of that, God has been satisfied that Christ died in our place. And now he has made available that all men could be saved through that sacrifice. And so Christ has done that. And these believers were to remember that. They were to consider that because this was the basis of their confession. This was the basis of what they believed. The word confession means to say the same thing. And so, in other words, writers saying, hey, this is what all of us Christians believe, guys. Think about it. You guys are claiming that you're a Christian, and, and you're claiming that, that you believe in Jesus is what we all believe, but now you want to turn away from him and go back to Judaism? That's contrary to, to what you're claiming, you know, as you walk with God. And so, he's, he's going to point out here that, that Jesus is greater um, than Moses. Verse 2 who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. And so Jesus was faithful to the father who appointed him. God sent Jesus to the earth with a mission and at no point did Jesus fail in this mission of God. John 13 says that he loved his own until the end. I mean, I mean, what an amazing ministry that Christ had. He was faithful to the father. But now he talks about Moses here. He compares Moses to Jesus he says, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Now, this reference to Moses' faithfulness comes actually from God himself. 
in the book of Numbers. So the writer wasn't just making this up. This actually comes from God. In Numbers chapter 12, verses five through eight, here's what the Lord said concerning Moses. It says, then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. And then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. And so, wow, Moses was faithful. And the father even testified it there. Now, what is his house? Well, it's his with the capital H. It's talking about God's house. It's the father here, not Moses. And this house is more than likely referring to the people of God. That's God's focus. Often it's called, God calls Israel the house of Israel. He's talking about the people of God in that passage. The center of the people of God was the house of God, the tabernacle. As the Lord set up his camp, right, and made the tabernacle at the center, and he made all these camps around it. And so the Lord is saying, hey, Moses was faithful in all my house. He's faithful to my people in accomplishing his mission to deliver his, my message to the people. That message is the law that these folks want to turn back to. They want to go back to Judaism, right? And the basis of Judaism was the law. Now, Moses had an important ministry in giving the law, if you think about it. Because God, through the law, was doing a very special and unique work. And so as you read through the Bible, you notice that at different times, God revealed himself in special ways and at special times. We call them dispensations. It's a big word. But it just means that God worked different ways and, and, he, and he revealed himself in, uh, through different means. Well, through Moses, God established the law. And he established a unique way that Israel would relate to God. We're told in Exodus 19 that if Israel kept the law, they would be a holy, um, they would be a holy nation a kingdom of priests, and a special people. That's a pretty amazing thing. So God worked this law through Moses and brought it to Israel, and God said, hey, if you keep this law, you're gonna, you're gonna have a special relationship with me. Not only that, but Israel had a unique way to worship God now. You see, now they had various sacrifices to the tabernacle. They had a high priest. They had feasts, and all these different things that God was doing. He was revealing himself in unique ways. And so, Israel knew, man, Moses had an important ministry to usher in this period of, of the law and, and this unique relationship. But Jesus also had a unique ministry being sent by God to usher in a unique work. John says, in John 1.17, he says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so just as God used Moses to bring the law in this, this period of the law, even so, God, through Jesus, brought in grace and truth. You see, Jesus ushered in a new period of time, a special work. Through the cross, he fulfilled the law. And then on the cross, he fulfilled what's called, he ushered in what's called the new covenant. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, right? As he gave the Lord's Supper, shed for you. And on the cross, the Lord signed and sealed the new covenant, brought it into being. And this new covenant that he established is now the basis of this age of grace that we live in that is no longer based upon the law, but now it's based upon Christ and him alone. And so the, the writer said, hey, okay, think about these two guys here. Moses was faithful to the people of God and, and ushering in this covenant, this work, as Jesus was also faithful in, 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 in ushering in a new work of God. 
but he takes it a step further in verse three. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch he who built the house has more honor than the house. And so while Moses and Jesus were both faithful to do this work of God, Jesus is greater. And he says here, it's not my opinion, he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And so he said, hey, just think about it. Let's, let's think about this for a second. It's rightfully so that Jesus is greater because he's accomplished a greater work. And also, he is in his person greater. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. So every house is built by someone. And that someone was not Moses, right? It's God. God is the builder of all things. And so here's the argument of the writer here. We can sum it up like this. So God is the builder of all things. And, but second, Jesus is the builder of his own house, as we see, drop down to verse six. It says here that Jesus is a son over his own house. And so, you know, here Jesus oversees the house as God oversees the house. And so the writer said, hey, Jesus is God. He's the one who built this house. He's the one who oversees this house. So the conclusion is that Jesus is God over his people. But Moses in verse two is called faithful in God's house. He was part of the people of God, just serving God. And so, and so Jesus is greater in that way and that he worked this unique work. Verse five, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. And so Moses wasn't overseeing the people of God, but he was in his house. That's once again, the capital H there. It's talking about God's house among God's people. Moses was faithful to serve among God's people. Now notice why God used Moses. It was to not establish the law in Judaism as an end in itself. It wasn't to be final, but rather it was to point towards the future work of Jesus. And so here was Moses, given the law, ministering to Israel as a servant, but yet here was God overseeing the people of God in the work of Moses, and the purpose of God doing that, and the purpose of Jesus doing that, was to point towards the future work of Jesus. And that's what he says here. He gave a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. So the whole law, the writer is saying, is man, Moses established those things. All these things were all a testimony. They would all be something that would be fulfilled and spoken afterwards. Jesus confirmed this in the Gospels as he walked with the folks there on the road to Emmaus. And they were kind of bummed out because Jesus had died. He said, hey, haven't you guys read the law? Don't you guys know that all that's written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms are all concerning me? They all pointed towards me. And then even in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five seventeen, he said, hey, not one jot or one tittle will, will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the one that it represented. And so the law itself even pointed towards Jesus. And we see that as we read through the Old Testament. I mean, just think about the sacrifices that were offered. Each one of them points to Jesus in a unique way. The priesthood itself, we'll see that later in Hebrews, all pointed towards Jesus. The tabernacle and its items and its furniture all pointed towards Jesus, right? You had the menorah, the light of the world, the bread in there, Jesus is the bread of life. The veil, the Bible says Jesus was the veil. I mean, all these different things all pointed towards Jesus. The feast of Israel 
all spoke in a very important way of Jesus. It's, an, it's really neat to see the Feast of Israel because God did some amazing things to the feast. He actually gave us prophetic things to the Feast of Israel. Jesus is called the Passover lamb. And Jesus fulfilled the Passover on the day of Passover as our Passover lamb. Also, he fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is right after Passover. And the fact that he was sinless, right? He was our sinless savior. And then on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The Lord fulfilled the day of Pentecost, which is after 50 days after, um, was it Passover, right? And then the Lord poured out his spirit upon all flesh, the first fruits, the first fruits of those coming to the Lord. But then the Lord's not done yet because all the other feasts are all future from there. We have the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of um, you know, Tabernacles. We have the Feast of the Day of Atonement. We have all these things. And all these things prophetically point towards that future time in which the church will be raptured, all Israel will be saved, and will come back and celebrate those feasts with the Lord in his kingdom. So they're all future. And they would realize this as they considered Christ and considered Jesus' work. Verse six, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And so Jesus is not a servant in the house of God as Moses was, but Jesus is over his own house, his church. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And so there was no comparison really between these two folks. Yes, they were both faithful, but Jesus is greater because he's God. And he's established a unique work of redeeming mankind and allowing man to come to him and and be part of his church. Now the writer gives a very pointed application from this verse. And really it's gonna stem on and actually go all the way into chapter four. But for now he gives a real pointed application. He says, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope. The confidence and rejoicing refers to the salvation that these believers had in the confession that they said they had. These believers had the assurance, confidence, and the expectation, the rejoicing and hope, that they would one day die and go to heaven. Also, they had an expectation that they would come back with Christ and rule and reign with him. Even though they said this, they were not thinking it through logically because Jesus is the only way that they can have this hope. It wasn't through Moses. It wasn't through Judaism. So the only result is they were to hold firm to the end their salvation. Now, at first glance, it seems that this verse is teaching that unless we maintain our salvation or maintain our faith, we have no hope of heaven. But this can't teach that because the Bible says that salvation is by grace alone. And if we have to maintain our salvation, if we have to keep our salvation through works, well, then it's no longer of grace. As Paul said, grace is no longer grace. Then it's works. No, our salvation is by grace alone. It's God's unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to earn it. We don't do anything to keep it. But we receive it and God works through our life. He changes us and molds us. A better way to understand this verse is that the writer is referring to the confidence and hope that these believers had. He's referring to the assurance that they claimed they had. If they were going to leave Christ and return to Judaism, then they had no confidence and hope that they were ever born again in the first place. Because the result of being saved is abiding in Christ. And so abiding in Christ is not something you have to maintain. Abiding in Christ is just a result that you have been saved in the first place. 
you've been born again. You have the Spirit of God in you, and if the Spirit of God's in you, He'll change you, and He'll 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 you'll persevere. You'll you'll walk with the Lord. Let me refer to two passages to show you this. The first is the parable of the sower. In Luke eight thirteen, Jesus said this. He said, "But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation." fall away. So in that parable, the Lord spoke of different grounds who received the gospel as the kingdom age, or not, excuse me, the kingdom age, as this time of the seed is being sown throughout this whole time period of Christendom, right? And the seed, the gospel falls on different grounds. Some reject it totally. Some think, oh yeah, okay, that's kind of cool. They kind of receive it, but they bear no fruit. They don't receive it and apply it. Those who are just too busy for it but those who actually hear it and receive it. And the Lord applies that to those here who believe it for a time, but in a while, because of temptation, fall away. It shows that they never had any root in the first place. They were never truly saved. First John 2.19, here's what John says about the false teachers who were leaving the church for some other doctrine. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they may, might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Holy brethren, that's a writer called them, right? And so if these folks were to leave their, their confession, if they were to return back to Judaism and reject Christ and set him aside, this was only evidence that they had no confidence, no hope of rejoicing. It's a severe warning. What were they to do? They were to stay focused on Jesus and press forward. Compromise was not an option, but they were to faithfully abide in the Lord. Same is true for you and I tonight. The key focus of this passage is faithfulness. And the Lord wants you and I to be faithful. Faithful in our faith, I'm sure, maybe some of you are struggling with doctrine tonight. Normally doctrine's not something folks struggle with, but it could be. We need to stay faithful to our calling, our doctrine, what the Lord has delivered to the church. But we also need to make sure that our life is backing up our doctrine, right? Our creed, you know, results in character. Our, our doctrine results in, in duty. We need to walk with the Lord and make sure our salvation is backing up what we claim we believe. The Bible describes us as soldiers, as athletes, and as farmers. And all of these roles, Paul told Timothy, imply faithfulness. So we need to continue to press forward with the Lord in faithfulness. The time will get hard for a soldier. You're gonna face warfare, but yet we need to keep our eyes on the general, right, and press forward. Times are gonna get hard for the farmer, right, but we need to continue to be patient and allow the Lord to do the work. And times will get tough for athletes. I'm sure most of you guys are watching the Olympics right now. I mean, the athletes, man, they're there because they trained hard. And sometimes it, it hurt a little bit, but yet they stayed focused, right? And those who run, run to win. Even so, you and I, time's gonna get tough. It could be suffering, it could be temptation. Whatever the case may be, we need to consider Jesus, keep our eyes on him, and stay faithful. And you know the good news is that the Lord will help us to stay faithful because it's the power of God in us. He won't, call us, he won't tell us to do anything that he also won't call us to do.